Pastors face a wide variety of challenges that can sidetrack them from a clear call to ministry. In this episode of Hope Renewed, we talk with Pastor Zach Eswine about the challenges ministry leaders deal with on a daily basis. Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for joining me for Hope Renewed. I'm Tom Jameson, and this is the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. It's where we explore the issues and situations that can put pastors at risk and share hope when ministry leaves us hopeless. We're happy to present a conversation I recently shared with Dr. Zach Eswine. Among many things, Zach is a pastor, teacher, speaker, author, blogger, and mentor, husband, and most recently, a new dad. He also is a new member of the board for PIR Ministries. We talked with him about that and the subtle dangers pastors are susceptible to in the first part of our conversation. We're excited that you've decided to, to join in partnership with PIR by coming on to the board of directors and uh, being a part of just what God's doing in this little part of the kingdom. And I, I just wondered if you might share a little bit of what got you interested or attracted to, to PIR or what excites you about the ministry of PIR and your role on the board of directors. That's such a good question. I uh, initially just Roy and Deb, uh, who they are, their story, their own personal story, testimony of God's grace in their life, and then the wisdom that's come out of very deep and dark places that they've known as leaders in ministry, and uh, how that's been used by the Lord now to uh, offer presence and wisdom to other pastors. I was just struck by that. I learned from them. And then as I learned about the ministry itself, uh, just how that uh, presence and wisdom, empathy, uh, a non-trite way of speaking into a pastor's life, uh, I, that's, that's not so common. You know, we're, we're, we're helped by uh, the regular materials that we pastors get, especially on an Easter week like this, five ways to do that, seven things to do to strengthen this. And, you know, all that can be really helpful, but, but uh, we, we need safe places and safe people and safe times as Leighton Ford uh, said, so we can go the long haul. And I think PR, PIR is a part of providing that kind of place, those kind of people, that kind of time so that pastors can bear fruit and, uh, thrive over the long haul, and those of us who those who come into contact with feeling like they don't have any more future in ministry, they their ability to thrive is gone. And uh, where where can such a pastor go? And I came to see that PIR is is a, a safe, knowledgeable place for a pastor and his family to turn to. So all those things together um, has warmed my heart to the ministry. Well, that's exciting to hear, and and uh, I know from our perspective, just seeing your background, your experience, the the way in which God has um, ministered hope to your heart, uh, is a real um, boon to what 
we see God doing uh, um, at PIR. As, as you come on the board, um, this might be more of a technical question. I don't know. What, what is your hope to see? How, how might you uh, desire to see PIR grow and move forward in, in this specific area of ministry? Well, I think uh, continuing in the same direction that it that it's going, and that is, uh, you know, initially or foundationally, PIR is a a place for exited pastors, a, a place for pastors who find themselves cut short in the calling that they had hoped for. And what a marvelous place uh, PIR is for that family and that pastor being able to place them in a host church, uh, being able to offer resources to help that pastor and his family reevaluate who they are, get in touch again with their calling, and to learn from the Lord what their future might be. I think just to continue in that way. I think out of that knowledge, there also comes the ability to uh, do preventative uh, work, uh, the, the knowledge gleaned then continue to transfer into pr the preventative side of coaching and uh, mentoring and um, uh, teaching and embodying things to uh, out of the knowledge learned. And I, I think continuing to go in those two, those two directions seems um, really helpful and meaningful and strategic for pastors. You know, it's it's very affirming, I think, to to hear you uh, resonate with with that part of the mission, uh, which really is core to to the ministry. And and I know as a as a former pastor to to know how vital that is to have a place like that. I think one of the things we hear so often from pastors is, oh, I, I wish you had been here ten years ago. I wish I knew about you twenty years ago. Because uh, it seems like every pastor runs into those times. Is that something you find? Yeah, that's right. It, uh, uh, the late Eugene Peterson used to say something like, um, uh, "It's it's difficult to be a Christian as a pastor in America," and uh, he was trying to get at the the, the challenges. The unique every every, glo every global culture, every global pastor has challenges and. But, and there are unique ones in the American churches, and um, all of us are going to encounter those, and we need help. Paul David Tripp wrote the book, uh, Dangerous Call. Does that resonate with you as you think about pastors in ministry, especially in the American church, that, that um, pastoral ministry can, can be a dangerous call? Yes. Yeah, certainly can. Uh, folks, you know, you know, if we were if we if we were missionaries to the east, you know, we would readily recognize um, aspects of syncretism. You know, aspects in Eastern cultures in which they've merged their own culture with the things of Jesus, and they've created this sort of hybrid, and they're worshiping Jesus, but it's really the Jesus of their own cultural making. Uh, we have a much harder time realizing that the West does that too, mm -hmm. and that that we are a part of uh, the world, as the Bible says it, we're in the world. Mm -hmm. And those worldly elements that seek to uh, fashion God or, or Jesus in their own image is a part of the daily ocean we swim in, uh, too. Mm -hmm. And so untangling that can be really difficult. And some of those uh, narratives that we buy into from the West is upward mobility, uh, consumer preference, 
immediate gratification, uh, numeric quanti- quantity uh, equals blessing. Yeah. Those, those and other, you know, um, don't let them see you sweat. Uh, you have to be extraordinary. Uh, why be ordinary? Those messages are constantly coming at us. And, and so, uh, and then add in there a celebrity mindset in which you are asked to do a large thing famously as fast as you can. And Mm -hmm. that is what will make you successful. All of those kinds of things get put into God language and Jesus language. And when that happens, um, any Christian, but particularly those of us trying to lead, now we're now we are uh, in a situation in which we're using um, an narratives, a way, a mental maps that aren't gospel mental maps. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're using non-gospel mentor, mental maps to try to bring the gospel to people, and our own souls uh, burn out there, and so do others, and. And so you've seen it again and again, at least I know you will have in your ministry there and the, the ministry I've been a part of that uh, again and again, uh, churches who, for all intents and purposes, everyone on the outside looking in, looking in, think, oh, I wish I could be like them. Mm-hmm. And then it's just a matter of time and you realize everything that was internal but hidden comes comes to the light and the large, famous, fast, fix everything, know everything, do everything in the name of God mindset. Uh, it just, it can't be sustained. And so we need a lot of help in these areas. Yeah. And I guess that would be my question. How, how do you counter that? I mean, the lie is so subtle uh, and it's becoming so ingrained, as you said, in, in, in our mindset, uh, even within the church. How do you counter that? How do you protect yourself from that? First, we just have to try to start naming these things together. Um, I mean, in the first place, someone has to come to believe that doing something large, famous, and fast is actually misguided. And we have a lot of work to do right there. Uh, It is true that God can do and has done a large, famous thing fast, like Pentecost. But uh, when thousands of people came to know the Lord. But, you know, uh, that never happened to Peter again. Uh, every sermon he preached after that, that never happened again. And it never happened up to that point. And he had to learn to do ministry uh, in the ordinary, small, mostly overlooked graces over a long period of time that brings about wisdom and uh, stability and solidness. So the first thing is we just have to name these things and talk about them and see, do you actually believe this? <laughs> actually believe that large, famous, and vast is not the norm and can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, that we want to do um, a great thing for God. We just have to make sure we're defining greatness the way he does. Um, so that's the first thing is naming that. And then the second thing is, okay, once, if we can get on the same page about some of these things, then how does, how does this begin to translate, say, into a congregational culture mm-hmm. and then the culture of my own family and my own heart? That right there is like three three years worth of podcasts. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but essentially to become, you know, we're, we're already explicit with things like we want to mobilize for mission, you know, and things like this. We're going to be gospel centered, you know, we're explicit about those things and, 
because we know that that kind of public talk shapes a culture. But we have to become as explicit about two things. One, our, our hidden talk, uh, the invisible, unscripted way of doing glad, sad, mad, and afraid in our culture, regardless of our public talk. And then we also have to become explicit about things like slow, mostly overlooked over a long period of time is the wisdom literature way uh, in the Bible. And uh, how do we become explicit about that in the rhythms of our congregational and personal family culture and in the talk? And there's a lot we can say about that. We really can do that. Um, but, but those are some big picture headings about what we'll need. And it sounds like you're saying kind of getting away from that external view to an internal view, not, not a navel gazing necessarily, but a, a soul caring, yeah. uh, soul searching kind of We'll say, for example, we'll say we want to have a Christ centered Bible study and uh, we want, uh, you know, in a smaller church, we want 25 people to attend this Christ centered Bible study. And that's what we're praying for. And what we've done now, wonderfully so, we've, we've got some measures of success. Is, the Bible, is it a Bible study? Is it Christ-centered? And did we get 25 people to come? And, and if we hit those three measures, we say God is on the move. There's success. But what we're missing is um, a little word like um, sustainable Christ-centered Bible study or relationally healthy Christ-centered Bible study or... Um, the manner of Jesus, not just the message of Jesus, Christ-centered Bible study. Mm-hmm. And now what happens is that that asks the experience of the people who came to the Bible study. How did they experience um, others when they disagreed? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if, if they didn't know an answer from the Bible, what was the vibe in the group toward them? Uh, if they have a doubt or a question, if they're not a Christian and they came to the Bible study, if they're a Democrat, not a Republican, or a Republican, not a Democrat, how does the group relate to them in that Christ-centered Bible study? And now you're starting to get at the actual culture beneath the public talk. And uh, what happens is we often don't use language in our explicit talk that would enable us to measure that. And so we, we give thanks to God's success without actually having asked anything about the way we relate to one another. So what, in essence, we're talking about the message of the Lord Jesus, but also his manner, the words of the gospel, but also its way. And um, how do we, how can we learn together to bring both, to, to bring those to, uh, yeah, to merge those when we think about the kind of culture and the kind of measurements that we're seeking. And I would imagine that that would need to be at work in the life of the pastor first before he could bring that to the congregation. Yeah, it does. And not in isolation. You know, when I hear that as an American pastor, implicitly, I'm an individualist uh, uh, on my own personal adventure, like the commercial with Matthew McConaughey says, you know, I'm in the car by myself on a lone road outside a community making my own world. Well, that's a wonderful picture, but it's deadly. It's just, it's deadly in ordinary life. And um, so if I think to myself, ah, it starts with the pastor. And now I think I have to get this right. And it's just me on the open road out there all by myself. It actually isn't encouraging after a while. 
um, it, it, it flattens us, numbs us, and we feel like we just can't do it. So when we say yes, it starts with the pastor. I still want to say in community. We need, we need mentors like PIR provides. Uh, we, we need uh, safe places, times, and people, like a Leighton Ford would say, in order to um, do that personal work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, you know, we hear uh, so often, and, and Dr. Wickman, Chuck Wickman, in his book, Pastors at Risk, says one of the things that puts pastors at risk is isolation. Mm -hmm. And and we hear this over and over and over again that, you know, the Lone Ranger pastor, the, the individualistic pastor, uh, and and the question invariably that comes back from them is, okay, I understand, I, I need to be in community. Uh, I, I, I can't do this on my own. Um, but I also find the people I'm leading can't be that community for me as fully as I need. At some level, they can, but and 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 the question is, how 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 do I find that community? How do I create that community? How do I connect to that community? How do I have friendships uh, with others? What what have you seen um, with that? Well, I, I think that uh, friendships with in in a, in a congregation can happen more than we think, mm -hmm. um, but it's hard for us to locate that because we have enough stories, all of us, where uh, the, uh, someone in the congregation actually viewed us in a consumer celebrity way. We didn't know it. They didn't know it. It's not like they are conscious of it. We showed a weakness, and they're out of here. And uh, And so rather than loving us, they were consuming us. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're tempted to do the same. We're tempted to consume a congregation rather than love them too. So it is a very real problem. And uh, um, so the help we need is like what we're talking about now. We're going to need each other. The challenge we have there is we need each other. We need we we will need each other without being pastors to one another. Uh, uh, yep. <laughs> we, we so uh, I've had the, 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 the blessing and benefit of having um, uh, mentors, being in a mentoring community uh, with fellow ministry leaders uh, who one of the things we lay down is we're not here to, as pastors to pastor each other. Uh, we're not here to fix each other. We're not here to solve each other's problems. Uh, we're here as human beings trying to help each other remember what it means to be human as a follower of Jesus. Out of that, we might have wisdom for one another. You know, we might. Uh, but um, finding uh, and cultivating a mentoring community like that, we, we have needed that. And I think for, like, I'm 50 years old, and I think folks my age and older have a harder time with what I'm what we're talking about right now. Okay. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Then those who are younger, uh, what I notice, I, I teach at a local seminary, and uh, and what I notice is that uh, folks in their probably mid thirties and younger, at least, I don't know if it'll continue that way, but at least there's a pocket. Those folks tend to form mentoring communities. A lot of them naturally, mm -hmm. uh, they uh, more more so than those of us who are a bit older. And so they, they find friendship in other ministry leaders that's more genuine, not, not completely and perfectly, but more naturally or readily. Their impulse moves that way more. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so then we say to ourselves, 
you know, I'm, I'm a small town pastor somewhere in the middle of the Midwest or I'm a, or I'm a mega church pastor and everywhere I go, people consume me rather than love me. And both of those pastors are saying, where do I turn to find a safe mentoring community? And that is the question. And that is our prayer. And imperfectly, but earnestly, I think that's what something like PIR is trying, trying to learn to do. And I, I think that's what we're, right now talking about and, and trying to learn to provide for each other. Mm-hmm. And, we, and uh, we're, we're starting, we're, we're all starting from behind. <laughs> <laughs> and we feel that you know, one of the conversations we is just an ongoing conversation is uh, how, how do we provide ministry to a multi-generational pastorate i guess if you would you know talk about that 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 um someone my age or older uh who is a more a traditional approach to pastoral ministry uh responds to uh the offer of mentorship or or the suggestion of that much differently than a millennial will. Um, And, and one of the thoughts we've had, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this is just that, and you've alluded to it, that millennials, younger pastors just view pastoral ministry in an entirely different light than perhaps the older generations do. Is that what you're finding? Yeah, that's really true. Uh, it's because of the, and partly because of the just different cultural mental maps they've grown up with. We've, we've about, about how you do glad, sad, mad, and afraid, how you handle emotion, uh, how you think about um, messiness. Uh, and there's a lot, lot to say about that, but I just think you're, you're right on there. And, uh, and so probably a, a mentoring a way of relating for those of us who are a bit older. If we were getting together, for example, we might not just sit at a, a, a sit right across from each other at a table and just share our hearts. You know, it'll take a little bit to get there. Mm-hmm. We, might, we might need to go on a hike or go uh, fishing together go fishing or something. Together yeah. something. We got to go build a build a fence. I don't know. We got to build a birdhouse. We got to like <laughs> do something. You know, together. Whereas, you know obviously there are exceptions to these things we're talking about. There are folks older who would be happy to sit down and share that. But, but by and large, young, uh, younger folk, uh, they're, they can just sit right down and just tell you whatever, you know, whatever you just lay it right out there. Yeah. And there are strengths and weaknesses and each generation actually needs one another um, in this regard. But um, yeah, so we will have to, we do have to out of love for, these diff- different folks and different generations listen and learn and, and find our ways forward together. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with pastor, teacher, and author Zach Eswine. In our next episode, Zach shares some of his personal journeys in mentoring, his perspective on developing a Sabbath trust and healthy rhythm in ministry, and some places where he has experienced the life-giving hope offered in Jesus Christ. You can learn more about PIR Ministries at our webpage, pirministries.org. 
Please know we stand ready to serve you and pastors you know facing the uncertainty and pain of forced vocational transition. Thanks for listening to Hope Renewed. And remember, the hope of Christ does not put us to shame.